show on Radio Karam. My name is Henry. And I'm Brendan. And uh, sorry for the slightly late start today. We had a bit of a mix up with the key. <laughs> so hopefully uh, you'll hung around for a bit. Uh, but yeah, we are the hosts of The Gardening Show here on Radio Karam. And we're excited to be joining you to talk about all things gardening and local food production. We're two local dads who share a passion for the garden, sustainability, growing food and just giving it a go. We also help to run Downs Community Farm, which is a budding non-for-profit just adjacent to the Seaford wetlands. And our mission is to promote and share the benefits of home gardening in our local community. So we're going to be talking about gardening in general, playing a few tunes, and uh, yeah, engaging with our listeners. So I will throw this over to you, Brendan, for an acknowledgement of country. Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you, Henry. And as always, we're going to start with an acknowledgement of country. Uh, I'd like to pay my respects and our respects to um, the traditional owners of this land, the Bunurong and, Bunur- and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. And we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Uh, and we recognise that the land was never ceded. Let's kick on. Let's kick on, Brandon. How are you doing, Henry? I'm doing very well. Uh, a bit sweaty from our power walk to go <laughs> get the key, but but we're here uh, and we're, we're in. We're here. We're ready. Um, yeah, it's good. It's it's been it's been a very interesting couple of weeks weather-wise, mm. which has I won't say has caused havoc in the garden, but I've certainly noticed some changes ah. um, in terms of the number of insects around, the way the plants are responding. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a good observe and interact sort of a fortnight. Cool. How about you? Uh yeah, it's been a great weekend. Uh, it's been a very productive <laughs> yeah. couple of <laughs> couple of weeks. And uh, I just mentioned to you off offline before, but getting married on the weekend hey, last congratulations. weekend, so that was fantastic. And um, very exciting. It was a wonderful day, and probably the best thing about the day was um, uh, just in terms of the weather was. Just that it was perfect. Yeah. The sun was shining. It was not too hot. It was not too cold. We were really fortunate. So it was a brilliant day. If we're talking wedding venues, mm-hmm. um, you certainly, I would think, would recommend this venue. Yeah. You showed me a few photos and what a garden. It is, yeah. yeah. So we've spoken about Alloan Gardens a few mm-hmm. times and uh, we we actually held the wedding there under and had the ceremony under a wisteria tunnel. Um, which is beautiful. So I would highly recommend going and exploring those gardens. It's a really brilliant place to go and check out. And they've got a, you know, um, uh, a kitchen garden, a permanent kitchen garden, yeah. which is brilliant. They've got a French provincial garden. They've got yeah. the um, a working kitchen garden. They've got all sorts of different stuff. So yeah. highly recommend and check it out. Not just for weddings. No, no. <laughs> we'll be going back there for just a picnic on the grass. Awesome. I, I guarantee it. Um, how did we go last last episode? Yeah, so last episode we we talked uh, about a few things as usual. So we we talked indoor plants, something that I think is not necessarily our strong suit mm. <laughs> when it comes to gardening, um, but I think something that we both want to become better at. And uh, 
yeah, that was that was an interesting little chat. We uh, talked about the eleventh uh, uh, permaculture principle, which was using edges and valuing the marginal, or as I like to think of it, just putting plants in every square inch of your garden, <laughs> wherever you can find a spot, chuck them in. And we did a spotlight on uh, cucurbits, the cucurbit family. So yep. your pumpkins, zucchinis, gourds, zucchinis, cucumbers, melons, all the good stuff. Um, but yeah, what about this week? Yes. All right. So Henry, we are looking at, we're going to go a spotlight on peppers, mm. capsicums and chilies. Yeah. So not, not peppercorns. No. But peppers. Yeah. Funny, it, funny where the name comes from. We'll yeah. get into that in a little bit. Um, we're talking about the 12th, perma- 12th and final <laughs> permaculture principle for our permaculture spotlight, which is creatively use and respond to change. Yeah, very big one, especially mm. um, in our current climate. Um, I say that figuratively and literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, from here on in, uh, we'll start to delve into some, not permaculture principles, obviously, but permaculture ideas and and different things um, that are sort of related to permaculture in a way. Yeah. Um, so yep. we'll talk about some of those things in coming weeks. Um, and what, what what are we talking about finally? Water. <laughs> Water, water capture, big, big one on water today. So water capture, water storage, um, water usage, We're talking about irrigation, reticulation, ponds and bogs. Yes. And after this, I promise I will stop telling people to capture their rainwater. <laughs> no, I'll still, I'll still tell people <laughs> constantly. Um, but yeah, don't forget as always to send through any gardening questions that you might have to the number here, 0493 213 831. That's mm-hmm. 0493 uh, Or you can email us to our email, thegardeningshowradio at gmail.com. Uh, but to kick us off, we'll go with a song. Uh, I saw that you had added this song and I was like, a man after my own heart. <laughs> uh, so uh, a very deep cut from the <laughs> Red Hot Chili Peppers album, The Getaway. And this is called Feasting on the Flowers. Hi, I'm Disco Day from London, England, and whenever I'm in Australia, and in fact, even when I'm not online, I'll listen to Radio Caram. There we go. Thank you, Disco Dave. Back announcing into Radio Caram. <laughs> Welcome back. And that was Red Hot Chili Peppers with Feasting on the Flowers. Rock and roll. What a song. What a great song choice for this next session, section, I would think. Um, chili Peppers. Chilies and capsicums, yes. of course, uh, the pepper family um, or the pepper gen- uh, genus, I should say. Um, yeah, have you grown any? What's your favourite? Mm. I I had a really really great run with I believe it was the ricotto. Uh, so it was a light um, orangey, almost pale yellowy colour, um, and with some darker seeds inside, I believe. Now, I could be wrong mm. with the variety, so I won't hold myself to it here. <laughs> but it was uh, probably two years ago and yep. planted a whole bunch uh, that really, really came up well. Uh, they uh, We wound up pickling a bunch and preserving a bunch, and I think I've still got some in a jar preserved in the fridge as well. So that worked well. That was really good. It was a success. Wonderful. What about you? Oh, it's one of my favourite things to grow. Um, the, I've, I've been having trouble getting them to germinate this year. I think I've just, because the weather's been so, I guess we'll talk about, you know, germination, but mm. uh, because, the, you know, they do require very 
consistent consistent and warm temperature mm. to germinate and they do typically take a bit longer to germinate than some other things um so i've done a full second round now to try and get those to germinate um but the ones that i really like are well my favorite is padron peppers so they're they're from the northwest of the spanish peninsula um, where i'm from um from a, t- a town called padron which is very close to my hometown and they're they're really exciting to get popular here. You can find the seeds everywhere. They're common as like a tapas dish hmm. in Spanish cuisine. Um, much like jalapenos, um, you harvest them when they're still green. Because hmm. the thing about peppers and capsicums is you can harvest them and eat them at any stage. I love that. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. And, you know, the classic thing of the reason that you pay more for red capsicums over green capsicums, they're the same capsicums. <laughs> And it's just sitting on the plant for a longer time. <laughs> exactly. So it's less money for the farmer, right? So they yep. got to charge. They got to charge more. Um, but yeah, so uh, they're not spicy though. I was going to ask, how do they padron peppers sit on the scale, the Scoville scale? So the vast majority of them sit at a zero, mm-hmm. like a green capsicum. But then one in some number of them, and depending on the heat and how they grow, the number changes. It could be one in. 10, it could be one in 100, is very hot. Mm, cool. So it's like a Russian roulette. A bit of a lucky dip with the uh, chilies. It is, and it's a bit of a fun thing when you're sitting eating a bowl of them, you know, fried in olive oil, and every now and again a family member will go, oh, yep, I got one, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, so, they're re- yeah, really fun. Um, in terms of the Scovilles, I mean, I would put the heat at somewhere between a jalapeno and a habanero. Mm-hmm. So pretty spicy, but nothing that will kill you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not a ghost pepper um, so I do like them I have in the past grown some of the super hots mm. um, and most of them I'm just not doing anymore because they are almost impossible to use practically speaking in a kitchen so the Carolina Reaper um, the you know the Butchalokia or the ghost pepper mm-hmm. um, yeah i I tried them for fun. I ate one ghost pepper once in my old place in Northcote and I thought I will never grow this again. It was <laughs> like an hour of solid pain. Wow. Um, but one very hot pepper that I do like and that I'm trying to germinate at the moment is um, the oh, – on the name's escaping me now on the air, obviously. Um, it's the Jamaican one. Well, not Jamaican, the Caribbean one, uh, the Trinidad Scorpion. Ah, uh, yes. Yep. Very fruity and – um, very popular in sort of um, Caribbean cuisine. And, uh, yeah, one that I have tried once is uh, shishito peppers. So shishitos are very similar to padron peppers as well, much more common in the US um, where, again, they're harvested green, fried in oil, sort of smallish to medium-sized pepper. Mm. Um, I haven't really done much in the capsicum sphere, to be honest, but maybe in the future. That's something I'll try. Yeah, cool. One other one that we did, and obviously it's a very common um, pepper variety, but cayenne peppers. Ah, uh, yep. And we, I had a great harvest of that again, probably about two years ago, mm. and I wound up uh, oven roasting them. Oh yeah. And then crushing them up and making essentially just a smoked chili powder. It was really good. That's amazing. Way better than the really stuff good. you can buy, I imagine. It was, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Oh, uh, yeah, Thai chilies, of course. I've grown Thai chilies before. And bird's eye chilies. Bird's eyes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're great because 
value for money. You, mm. know, you buy one little one little plant and you'll get hundreds of them. Yeah, it's punching above oh, its weight. Yeah. It's doing very. <laughs> it's <laughs> doing well Definitely. for itself. The bird's eye. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I guess tell us tell us a bit of the the facts. A bit of backstory a bit, on chilies. A bit of backstory. Um, well, one thing is uh, one thing that we do need to acknowledge is that people eat chilies all over the world, almost in every cuisine. It's really yeah. implanted itself as a staple in in really in every cuisine across mm. the world, across the globe. Um, if we want to talk straight to the wiki, then chili peppers, um, <clears throat> varieties of, originally varieties of a berry-like fruit uh, from the genus Capsicum, and they're members of the nightshade family, Solanaceae, cultivated for their pungency. Mm. So chili peppers are widely used in many cuisines to add spice and add heat to dishes. Yep. So that's when you go straight to the source of the wiki. Um, but in terms of the name for chili peppers or pepper in general, the name supposedly came from Christopher Columbus. Oh, that uh, guy. That old guy. <laughs> who was given to him by Western uh, – so they gave him, obviously, uh, chilies to eat mm. uh, by Western natives. And upon eating the – he, upon eating it, felt the burn slash heat and gave it the name chilli pepper. <laughs> so, just because like because it because it, cause it reminded him of, of pepper, pepper peppercorns corn. exactly oh. so when you were mentioning it before it was a bit of an interesting oh, segue to it um <laughs> so it was first cultivated in central and south america around 3000 bc so again one of the very very early mm. adopted and cultivated domesticated fruits it gives you an idea i guess of yeah the climate that it likes mm, mm. yeah and as to whether or not it, it transferred to the Americas or from the Americas at the time of Christopher Columbus or not. It, it's probably a bit vague or hard to, yeah. to decipher. But um, taking seeds back to Europe in 1493, um, that would have definitely helped the spread of yeah. chilies into the market. <clears throat> um, chili peppers are also consumed, as we as we mentioned, around the world and they do dominate the spice market, the world spice market, with India being the largest producer of chilies. Yeah, great climate. Mm. Very warm. In, in parts of India, obviously. Great. Well, yeah. Um, so, as you mentioned, they sort of started off uh, the the you know the, the parent mother plant, I suppose, uh, where all these varieties have come from. Um, origin uh, is sort of small, round, red berry-like fruit, similar to the original tomato, where mm. it's just very tiny little berries. Um, and scientists believe that uh, birds are mainly responsible for the spread of wild chilies. Um, and the reason for this is, and if you have chickens, you know this, that um, birds don't have receptors in their mouth to heal, to feel the heat. Um, and the bird's digestive system doesn't harm the pepper seed. So, Great carrier. Yeah, great, <clears throat> perfect way um, to ensure that you know, the animal that you want to carry your, your progeny out um, is one specific animal and that the rest kind of leave you alone. So it's one of those really awesome adaptations. Um, and yeah, that's that's really why they they've determined that heat level, particularly to get to stop mammals from eating the pods. Um, I'm guessing because mammal stomachs are a lot better at breaking down that material and um, not allowing those seeds to go through. Uh, but yeah, um, this leads us to talk about something. Um, so when ripe, you can very easily remove the seeds um, or the plant rather, the chili from the plant. Um, 
calyx. And that's something called a calyx. Yeah. I've never heard this term before. Uh, maybe I have. I think I've probably heard this term before. What's a calyx? So we're going into a, a flower anatomy for a moment. Mm. And so essentially the calyx is, uh, we're talking the po- po- point where the flower is forming. Yeah. And we're talking where if you notice on a capsicum plant, sometimes you've got that little raised circular bumpy bit right at the very end and there's two little leaves that pop off um, and it's these leaves that we're talking about, the sepals of the leaves and this base part of it on the anatomy of the flower is called the calyx. Essentially this is the the base of the flower. So when we're pulling off a chilli, a a pepper by itself, it's taking it away or pulling it off Mm. quite easily and it's releasing from the plant without pulling the whole plant over if it's still green and ripe and and securely firmed in there. Um, Likewise, I guess you've got those two little leaves at the top of of a pea pod. I would say that that's going to be the same same thing. Same sort of situation. So we're looking at a calyx for that and flower anatomy. There you go. Fun fact. Hmm. So how do you grow them? Well, uh, following the the sort of rule of thumb of planting seeds about twice as deep as they are long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you easy to grow from seed, um, although it does, you do have to, you know, have a, as we said, an even um, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Consistent temperature, mm-hmm. <laughs> consistently warm temperature. Um, planting those seeds about five to 10 centimetres into the ground and, you know, keeping them protected, uh, making sure they're not getting sort of harsh winds that can really dry out the surface of the soil or mm. cool it down as well. Um, Going back to my, my dustbin dust method. What was this? I, could, I totally forgot. I know you mentioned this uh, yeah, a few shows so, back. Um, this is a, one of the protectors that I use uh, and essentially it's a green frame. Um, so a, a dustbin that's netted like a wire bin, I flip that ah, over, costs right. $1 from Kmart, flip it over <laughs> and then peg it down with some tent pegs. And essentially that's my little home for one of the, uh, generally speaking, a single plant yeah. um, as I'm allowing it to just fill up a little bit more space. The net holes are small enough that mosquitoes and oh, – sorry, not mosquitoes, cabbage moths or those sorts of things won't come through and land on it. But yeah. then you know, bees or hoverflies and those sorts of things can still get through and climb through. And it just protects as well, gives it a bit of – and birds as well, if they're going to come down and start picking at it and start mm. trying to eat early leaves and young foliage, um, then that's a little protector for that. So Nice little little cage. Mm. Um, and, yeah, uh, of course, uh, with peppers, and I'm sure people have experienced this before if they've grown them, is they, you know, while they don't require staking, it is a good idea if, it's, uh, if you have a place that has a bit of wind uh, because they can be knocked over um, at any stage. But I find when... They're really laden with chilies. They, you know, especially capsicums as well. I've seen this. I haven't experienced it. Is that they've got heavy fruit for the size of the plant, mm-hmm. um, so they can't blow over. Maybe stake them, give them a little bit of support um, to be safe. But one thing that I really like about peppers is the fact that while they might not necessarily be seen as perennials, they actually are perennial um, shrub. They are and. Mm. Of course, in our climate uh, and any climate that has quite you know, a cold, colder winter than you know, tropical Central America, uh, overwintering is the process. What's overwintering, Brendan? Okay, so chilies and peppers, just in general, they're not really going to like the cold, frost, mm. that sort of thing. Um, you're going to wind up getting droopy, and no, yeah, it's also going to leave uh, the 
the leaves susceptible to more disease and more pests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a method called overwintering, as you mentioned. And overwintering is essentially the process of removing the leaves and cutting back as much of the branches to reduce the amount of surface area that can be affected by those pests and disease. And the plant essentially conserves its energy over those winter months and then still stays alive but somewhat dormant um, until it's ready to bust forth in spring and start to flower again. And essentially this is a way to keep the plant alive over those winter months. Mm. So um, you could do things like potentially moving it inside as well when you're over winter. Good idea, yeah. Um, and again, consistency, less variation in temperature. If you're you, – there is – not all chilies have to be overwintered. And, and capsicums. Um, if you've got a, a chili plant and it's in a really nice microclimate and it's in a warm spot, I'm d- talking to my front yard at the moment because we do have one or two chili plants that I just ignored, totally left them mm. and they've loved it. Over the winter, uh, they s- still stayed and survived. In fact, I didn't cut this one back. I just wanted to experiment and see what happened. And it's loved it. It's it's flowering now. It's still fruiting now, and and it's getting prepared. I think my risk there is is going back to the pest disease side yeah. of things, and, and perhaps I'm not going to be um, keeping that one again for an, another season. Yeah, That's, that reminds me. Actually, it, it just it just reminded me uh, many 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 moons ago when I lived in in Sydney, uh, and I was uh, in a share house, and I moved in and. You know, you go through the the interview with with the the housemates, and they said, "Oh, you know, what are you into?" And I said, "Oh, I like gardening and stuff." I see you have a nice backyard, and they said, "Oh, that's awesome. We have some raised beds." Um, and I said, "Really?" They were very neglected, covered in stuff. You couldn't even see them. So anyway, I ended up moving in there, and up until this point, not knowing what I didn't know, I assumed chilies were like tomatoes, an annual. And I went out there, and there was a chili. I say chili plant, it was a chili tree almost, you know, it was probably a meter and a half high. (laughs) Uh, Its trunk was maybe five, five, centimeter diameter, seven centimeter diameter. So it's probably been there for four or five years. Absolutely. And in Sydney, of course, much warmer, more consistent climate than here, generally speaking. Uh, And it was, I don't don't even know the variety, upright sort of chilies that sort of stick straight up mm, similar to okay. bird's eyes and yep. stuff uh, but a bit f- a bit thicker and I, I still have no idea very spicy I do remember and it just completely sent me down a rabbit hole of learning about chilies because I thought how did it do this in one year mm. <laughs> obviously it didn't you're right it must have been a, a few years at least but yeah it's uh, similar of course to to those ones in your front yard had just been planted and ignored but it was in a nice little spot and it weathered many years of um, you know, growing and dying back a little bit and growing. So next time you, you buy a chili plant, mm. think about overwintering so you don't have to buy new ones every year. That's a great suggestion. Especially if you, uh, you, you find a variety that you like. Also worth mentioning, you can do that with not all of the solanaceous crops, but you can do it with eggplants as well. Ah. Um, you can overwinter eggplants in a similar way, not tomatoes. Because they're a bit too weak yep. in the stem. Uh, but yeah, uh, positioning. So where do they like to live? Yeah. We Plant- spoke about it before mm. a little bit. And that's probably the wind. Wind is the big one, right? Yeah. So protect them from the wind. They obviously come from uh, places where they don't get a lot of exposure to, to hard winds. Um, but they do get lots of light. 
um, you know, plenty of sun. It doesn't have to be, you know, eight hours a day necessarily, but a place that gets good sun, protection from wind, uh, is a, the warmer part of your garden. So if we're talking about a microclimate, perhaps next to, um, you know, a stone wall, something that's just going to be a bit of a heat bank to help them through the night. Uh, and they do really well in pots. Uh, I've got one that I've planted in a pot, which is the Mad Hatter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, chilies generally don't grow as quickly as tomatoes because they are, again, they're a perennial. They, they do more of a slow and steady growth than the explosion that tomatoes undergo. Uh, but it seems relatively happy. Uh, so pots is good and it, that does allow you to move them around if, if you feel that maybe they're getting too much sun that you can uh, put them in somewhere that's a little bit more dappled for a while. Yeah, mm. great point, great suggestion. Uh, we we've got a we've got some pepper questions that have popped in on the text line, okay. which is fascinating That's and exciting. Um, <laughs> so we'll get into those in just a moment. But I did want to just mention really quickly in terms of feeding peppers, and just to steer away from high nitrogen fertilizers, and essentially just telling you that not needed. Um, no. So generally not needed. You can do some drop pelletized poo blends if you want to be doing um, slow release. And again, mm. this is talking back to that uh, principle of not too much all at the one time, yeah. but slow release. And if you wind up getting uh, too much nitrogen, again, the leaves are going to go droopy. It's going to look sad even though it's in the middle of the day sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and the other part to just mention is as well rotation. Um, yes. And that's probably one thing to consider just to avoid soil-borne diseases. And generally speaking, you want to rotate a particular area probably every three years or so. So you're not planting peppers in to that same spot specifically if you're dedicating a particular mm. bed to peppers alone. Maybe next year plant something else in there, give, mix it up a bit, put some yeah. um, brassicas in there or put some something else. Um, then come back to it in a few years. Yeah, similar to tomatoes in that sense as well. Correct, It's yeah. good to rotate them, yeah. What about watering? Water, deep soak. This is a deep soaker. Um, they are, they're quite deep-rooted mm-hmm. um, plants. So unlike shallow-rooted plants, like let's say things like lettuce, where it's good to water, you know, often and not as deeply as you might think you need to, mm-hmm. with these ones it's better to, you know, in the warm weather, even if it's quite hot, every couple of days uh, is absolutely fine. If, you know, we're going through a time like right now where we're getting rain once or twice a week, um, you don't really have to water them at all, to be honest. Um, Mm. You know, keep them mulched, of course, especially when it's really hot, uh, but do give them a good deep drink when you do water them uh, so that you're really forcing those roots down even further. And uh, that will also help with the wind issue. Yep, strengthen (laughs) the plant. Anchor anchor them into the ground a bit better. Uh, In terms of pests and diseases, so at the most part, they're quite resilient as far as like most – again, we have to think about them as perennials. And perennials, generally speaking, are a little bit more resilient to pests than annuals. Um, uh, There are, of course, some reports of, you know, aphids and and caterpillars um, liking them. But in my experience, I've – they have stayed relatively untouched, mm. in particular if there are other plants in the garden that are a bit more palatable for those insects. Uh, blossom end rot, of course, is one of those things that can affect them, similar to tomatoes. And as we know, that is almost always a calcium issue, a calcium <laughs> deficiency, um, uh, but something that can be exacerbated 
with um, really irregular watering. Um, so, yeah, just a thing to keep your eye on there for a second. And finally, I just wanted, before we go to this question, uh, a, a hot... <laughs> a spicy a, tip. A spicy tip. Um, if you are going down this super hot chili rabbit hole, um, you know, and wanting to grow those, if, if you watch the show Hot Ones, for example, which is very popular online, you might be thinking, oh, I want to grow some ghost peppers and things like that. Um, do be extremely careful. I would not recommend you grow them if you have pets or animals that are, well, chickens is fine, but animals like dogs and stuff. Um, certainly not if you have kids. And use gloves. That's the big one. And it will most likely tell you that on the packet um, because anything really, anything hotter than a jalapeno, which is not a particularly hot chili in the grand scheme of things, if you get some of that oil in your eye, it is going to be very serious. Oh, and Just made me wince. <laughs> I know. And, and having, having done that with chilies that are hotter than jalapenos, I can tell you it's very not nice. Um, but when it comes to those super hots, the Carolina Reapers, the Ghost Peppers, the Trinidad Scorpions, and all those other funny ones that have names like Megadeth 4000 <laughs> and all the ones you see pop up, um, think that those are typically anywhere from 10 to 150 times hotter than you know, a jalapeno or a bird's eye. eye. So (laughs) that can literally end up with you in the hospital. So do be very, very careful if you grow those and uh, incredibly careful when you're handling them. Yep, 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 absolutely. There you go. Great question. Yeah, so we've got a question and also another little tip that I had. Mm. Um, One, propagating and being able to save seeds from chilies is super easy. Which yeah. is great. Capsicums as well. You open up that seed. You once you cut it open and take out that chunk of seed, you can literally just flick that out with your hand, and yep. it will all drop out. There's no none of the jelly-like substance around the seed to preserve it. It's just going to be a straight seed. It will dry very, very easily and preserve quite well. Yeah. Um, another one is when you start to see fruit, and this is like much many many other things in the fruiting world as well. Um, and I'm thinking about zucchinis and cucumbers and those sorts of things. Keep picking. Yes. Do pick. Don't stop picking. Don't don't just leave it to do its thing because often the trees will want it to revert back to maybe budding up smaller ones, become a bit more wild, a little bit more natural. We, you mentioned it last week and when we were talking about cutting back fruit trees and mm. saying that you really want that fruit tree to be kind of stressed um, for for a lot of the time to be worrying about itself because and therefore having to produce fruit yeah. um, uh, rather than dropping into a two-year cycle of, of producing fruit. So very much the same sort of style. Keep picking them. Help that plant promote more growth. Let it know that it needs to shoot out more flowers and more, more chilies so that you keep on harvesting. You get yeah. that abundance. Healthy but stressed. So yeah. I say slightly stressed. Actually, that leads me to one last little thing is um, – Harvest them at different times. Mm. So, you know, we're used to eating certain variety chilies, particularly. I think we've had capsicums every color of the rainbow, but um, with with um, your more spicy chilies and even you know those bullhorn varieties of capsicums and things like that that you see, um, try them at different stages. So you know, let a jalapeno go red, and then start cracking slightly and creating this um, dried striations on it. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what that's called exactly, but let it go and then um, try it because you might prefer some of these varieties at a different stage than what you're used to eating. So try them when they're very tiny, try them when they're what you're used to, try them when they've gone fully ripe and get more of an idea of um, 
how you might want to use them in the future. Mm. Mm. Now, I think you've actually semi-answered the question that we had coming oh, coming through, which shit. is pretty brilliant. <laughs> oh, pardon me, I swore as well on the line. I can't do that. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't. I swear, I didn't even look at it. Yep. you can attest to that. You've no, got the phone. No, that's all good. It um, says, it says uh, a couple of pepper questions for you. What's the optimal time to harvest chilies for the best flavor and heat? And I think you just really summed that up well. So trial it at different times, see what works, see what you prefer um, and see what works for the plant as well. Um, generally speaking, it, it's variable and it can be any time. So it's really personal preference. But as we mentioned, you can harvest and eat from green all the way through to red, all the way through to, to dried as well. Yeah, I think I would, what I would add to that is even though you can harvest, you know, non-green varieties of chilies while they're still green, if you really want the right texture, um, at least wait until they're full-sized. Yep. Okay. Um, you know, so if you're harvesting them when they're still, you know, if, if you're talking about growing a capsicum and you're harvesting it when it's the size of a marble, you're not really going to get a lot out of that, obviously. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, wait till it gets at least mostly to full size and then you can choose. But functionally speaking, not much difference in terms of, affecting the plant in any way mm. and be mindful with the capsicum plants not all of them will jump into those giant giant mm. jumbo capsicums that you do see in the supermarket sometimes a capsicum plant it may only grow up to 50 centimeters or half a meter off the yeah. ground and the the size again maybe not the marble size but uh, a small a small apple size as yeah. opposed to one of the giant giant <laughs> yeah. capsicums i'm sure there are plenty of people who do grow them and can grow them successfully mm. Um, but again, that's probably just a little bit of my own growing experience there. Mm, definitely. And the last one around chilies, and it's probably going to be our little chili wrap up on this, is um, and peppers. Is do you have any tips on preserving and storing chilies for later use? Well, you've mentioned one before, which Dried. is a very common one: mm. drying them, uh, and of course, you can smoke them beforehand as well um, to get that sort of smoky. Paprika. Yeah, paprika kind of flavor. Mm. That's a good way to do it. Uh, this is less about preserving but more at least an interesting way to use them. Um, I used to work in bars when I was younger um, and we used to make all kinds of infu infusions um, in tequila, in vodka to make in interesting cocktails. And one that's really nice is to actually put spicy chilies into a spirit, mm. um, so a vodka or a tequila and – Literally just put them in there, maybe poke a hole or two in the uh, in the skin, sit them in a bottle and leave them for a couple of weeks and impart some of that oil into into the drink. And uh, that's a fun way to use them. I wouldn't say it's necessarily storing them that way, but I suppose mm. you could store them in there for a very long time. <laughs> They're not going to rot in, in, uh, in pure alcohol. Uh, and then you can, of course, uh, you can dehydrate. That's a good one too. Uh, and things like chili jams. Chili jam, course, yep. You know, jam. chili jam's a good one. Chutneys, things like that. Dried chili powder. You can obviously compress a lot of chilies once it's crushed up into a powder. Yeah, <laughs> they're very and high in water content. Yes, um, and there's a lot of obviously air inside of them as well. Yeah. Uh, but it will last for a long time if you've got dried chilies in a bag or something like that. It can go onto the spice shelf, and again, much with many herbs, drying and storing herbs is a. It's actually quite a good value part of getting of gardening so when you want to get dollars back into the pocket mm. um growing and, and harvesting and drying herbs is a great one you just reminded me of something um because you mentioned it before as well the pickling calyx 
Oh, yes. So if you uh, if you have been to India or, you know, um, I mean, lots of places, they do this a lot in Italy as well, anywhere that consumes a lot of chilies, you might see, you know, huge hanging bunches of chilies drying. Mm. Um, so the way to do that is to, you know, use a needle with a thread or fishing wire or something and go through each of the chilies calyx <laughs> area. Nice. Um, so that you're not actually piercing the skin of the chili itself because that's when it can rot. Mm. So you go through the calyx, the green bump mm-hmm. at the top of the chili, and that's how you sort of thread them up and let them dry. And then you can air dry them in a shed, anywhere that's you know, relatively cool and, and ideally a bit dark as well until they go fully dry. And then you can either, as you said, grind them up into a powder or flake them, put mm-hmm. them in a food processor for a, you know, blitz them for a bit. Or you can just, um, like you will often find in Mexican cuisine, is rehydrate those chilies. Um, if you're making a sauce or something, mm. and just um, yeah, put them in, put them in, you know, simmering water until they kind of plump up again. You can chop them up and do whatever. And of course, you can also pickle just like you, or preserve and pickle like yeah. you do with cucumbers and uh, dill cucumbers, that sort of thing. Throw chilies in there as well. I'm a Give big, it a bit of spice. I'm a big pickled chili guy. So yes, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, uh, thank you, listener. So many uses, so many ways to uh, to do that. Um, that's all those questions. Yes. Yes. Let's go to a song then before we get into permaculture. So this one is, <laughs> you put this one there, I had a bit of a laugh. I was like, where have I heard this song before? And then you sent the other song that used the, the hook in this. Yes. Which was, which was a Tupac song, but we're, <laughs> we're playing the original here. We're, we're stepping through a little segue yeah. into change. I love it. Uh, This is The Way It Is by Bruce Hornby. Hornsby, I should say. Don't worry about a thing Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right Don't worry about a thing Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright If you got a tummy ache Or you don't feel right Or if you have a nasty rash Keeping you up at night Don't worry About a thing Don't worry Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright <laughs> I almost want to be sick so that I can go to Atticus House. Wow. Uh, Friday Night Frothies, that was an unexpected winner. I love it. <laughs> uh, once again, that was The Way It Is uh, by Bruce Hornsby. Um, and you might recognize that as Changes mm-hmm. by Tupac. But anyway, um, let's let's get into a bit of permaculture. This is the final permaculture principle. We've done very well. And I want to say a big thank you. To you, Henry. Oh, to me. <laughs> yeah. A big thank you to you for taking us through these permaculture principles. You've you've really enlightened a lot and you've brought afford a lot of thoughts in, in for me personally in terms of how I think about permaculture principles and I guess conceptualizing it, giving it a bit of a blanket around it so that mm. I can you know, be in that space and be thinking, oh yeah, yep, this is this is how I can um, take on a particular particular theme or idea of permaculture. Yeah. Um so thank you. You are welcome. And yeah. Permaculture is one of those things that 
if you if you study it, you realize very quickly that you are there. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of rabbit holes that you can go down. Mm. Um, so it's it's yeah. I think it's nice to just take things slowly, bit by bit, try and get people's head around things. Um, having said that, all twelve of the principles are all very interrelated, and I guess the idea of designing a permaculture garden is is to for every element in your system is to see how many of these principles are you ticking off uh, and the more the better obviously so a lot of them there's a little bit of repetition and a lot of things that kind of flow from one into the other um, but this one it's uh it's quite good that it's the the 12th one because i think it it this one speaks to the core of uh i guess the the why of permaculture hmm. why should we be doing this sort of stuff why should we be designing gardens in this way why should we be growing food in this way and it's because of change change is the big one um it is you know the one constant is change as they say and that's really what this speaks to uh and you know we can talk change in the the micro so you know the change of the sunlight during the day and as we know in in melbourne uh, four seasons in a day is a thing um uh obviously the change around the year uh but also the 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 more macro change, so things like climate change, yep, um, is is a big one too. Uh, but also societal change, you know, things like cost of living, things like peak oil and energy decline, and all these big heavy concepts that come in when you study permaculture, and which really explain not only part of why permaculture was created, but the role that it can play in building our resilience uh, in our gardens and therefore our lives. Summed up brilliantly. Thank you. And it's totally off the top of my head. <laughs> that was really good. I promise you I wasn't going through that in the car in my <laughs> But no, but I mean that that's really why I wanted to learn this. And it's so to important to have to to have those motivators, to have the mm. whys and to have them understood as well. Definitely. Take but, us through it. Well, before we get into it, just, um what are your thoughts on this? Mm. What are your initial thoughts on on this uh, creatively use and respond to change? Principle. I'm very much a proponent of what you just mentioned. Change is, is a constant. Um, the seasons change throughout the year. Um, like our <laughs> our time in the garden, sometimes our motivations and passions change as well. Um, we're, we're talking about climate change, probably the one of the big ones at the moment. And something that I'll just jump to really yeah. is we've got right now uh, something we can immediately relate to and that's the recognition of El Nino. Yes. And as Melbourne goes, we do. We do often get four seasons in a day. Thanks, Crowded House. Mm. Um, so El Nino and, and essentially what that is. Um, so this is a positive Indian Ocean dipole is underway. So El Nino and a positive Indian Ocean dipole. Yeah. And this is going back to the Bureau of Meteorolo- Meteorology and when we've got La Nina and El Nino. Yeah. And La Nina is usually going with the wetter times and El Nino is going with the drier times and hotter times. So a call for El Nino or when scientists come out and say, hey, we're in this climate pattern mm. um, or this is what it's generally saying is we can expect some trends of, of heat. Um so what this is going to allude to from a very quick snapshot into El Nino and our climate change uh, is that sea surface or uh, central and eastern Pacific sea surface temperatures uh, will continue or do continue to exceed current El Nino thresholds. And then what that means is the more than 
warmer than average waters beneath the surface, um, supporting the warmth at the surface. Uh, surface. So it's a bit of a funny one, but essentially it's looking like El Nino conditions are going to remain or the thresholds are going to be there and over those thresholds into um, autumn 2024. So still some time away, Mm. another year. Uh, wanted to t- just mention the long-range forecast for Australia indicates uh, warmer-than-average conditions are likely across Australia um, from November to January, with below-average rainfall across much of Australia, excluding parts of the southeast. Um, so that's specifically talking probably about Tasmania and Victoria here. Yeah. Um, the Bureau's climate model, so this is the Bureau of Meteorology, takes into account all influences from the oceans and atmosphere when generating its long-range forecasts. So the thing that popped out to me straight away is how do we adapt in a changing environment when especially when we're talking about an immediate, if we're talking about immediately hot weather, hot conditions, I think changing temperatures quite often as a very practical gardening sense. Mm. Um, during during the winters and during the summers, and sometimes we'll go to some additional lengths to protect or look after some plants. Um, we mentioned overwintering to bring plants and chili plants inside, yep. but often sometimes outside if you get a really, really, really hot, dry summer or you're getting into, you check the forecast and it's got a rung of 35 plus days, which can definitely happen, um, sometimes to protect the plants as well. Yeah. Add in some additional watering, add in some shade cloth. Um, there might be a particular plant that you just do not want that one to, <laughs> to be susceptible to anything. So you might take mm. a bit of extra care with that one. Yeah. Um, that's That was one of the first things that jumped into my mind when I thought managing change and how do we manage change. Um, it also may be different water sources mm. or feeding the, the, the plants differently, um, designing the garden or planting it slightly differently. It may be um, growing in some pioneer plants to provide some shade later on down the track in one or two years. Um, that's That popped into my mind straight away. But Great. Take, so let's go, to the next, let's go to the next song then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I honestly can't – you have done so well. You have done so well, Brendan, my, my no longer Padawan, I would say. Um, that's very much – you've mentioned a lot of what I want to talk about here, which is, you know, when, when we say creatively use and respond to change, I think creative uh, is a big part of it. Um, you know, when we are creating a garden or we're thinking about how a garden's going to evolve over time is putting things in place that are going to help us – be resilient in that change. Mm. So you know, one thing I was thinking about is, you know, when I when I move on from my current place and are sort of working in my, my next garden or certainly in my current garden a few years down the line is, you know, sort of permanently implementing structures in my garden beds to hold shade cloth instead of having to build them as and when because mm-hmm. I know it's going to become more and more likely that more and more, especially I'm talking 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, that at least in summer, um, growing you know lettuces in Victoria is going to become increasingly more difficult hmm. uh, without shade. So sort of designing for that. Uh, also designing irrigation systems that can, you know, have the capacity to increase water. Uh, and we're going to talk a lot about water after, after this section because uh, here's a – it's not a fun fact. It's a bit of a scary fact. But 
you know, the way climate change is moving at the moment, um, some of the research suggests that 50 years from now, so you and I may still be alive 50 years from now, hopefully. Hopefully. Um, the climate of Melbourne is going to much more closely resemble the current climate of Sydney. Right. So if you've lived in Sydney, you know it's very different to Melbourne, right? It's it's I would describe it as somewhere between Mediterranean and subtropical climate, somewhere in the middle. So you get to get some really stinking hot summers, a lot of humidity, and very mild winters. So the ability to grow the crops that we grow now, uh, not to say it won't be possible, but the way that we grow them is going to have to change. Mm. And we're going to require shade a lot more, particularly for plants that are susceptible to burn. Yep. So that's a big part of it. Uh, how do we do that? Well, you mentioned a few of them, um, but you know, I think yeah, using pioneer plants um, or certainly just generally speaking perennials. Uh, perennials are more often than not more resilient than annuals. Um, yeah, they're playing the long game yep. essentially as far as it goes. Uh, and of course, when we talk about perennials, we're also talking about trees. So, you know, increasing the amount of trees in our garden is a really yeah, and of course we can do fruit trees, so they can still be food. Mm. Um, but putting in the effort um, and growing fruit trees that we know can deal with warmer temperatures, because that is what we are expecting over time. So, yeah, the thing with uh, you know Victoria is our climate is not the same, but it's more similar to the Northern Hemisphere climate in in you know, Europe and in North America, where we do have. You know, our winters are, are cold, not by their standards. You know, we don't get snow here in Melbourne, but, you know, that that does mean that um, the plants that naturally grow in that area, so berries, you know, stone fruit, things like that, you know, apples and things, um, do really well here. Um, can they be grown in Sydney? Of course they can, but it's not necessarily as easy. So mm. it's something that we have to think about. Uh, what sort of species are we using? I'm not saying go out and start planting bananas right away, but, you know, <laughs> start they, things. They have been grown in they Melbourne. They have been grown in <laughs> Melbourne and it's only going to get easier mm. for a really sad reason, climate change. But, you know, uh, it is something to, to consider. Um, so, yeah, modular garden design is another good one. So, you know, containers and planters that you can uh, move around yeah, and change yeah. the configuration of is going to become increasingly more important. Uh, in some gardens... You should already be doing that. If you have a, a stone patio or something or a paved patio only, um, put your place, put your raised planters on wheels because it is you are going to need to move them around, especially as summers get hotter over time, um, especially these sorts of El Nino years. You're going to want to be able to move your lettuces and your, your annual veggies around and kind of... Where possible, it, yeah. When yep. possible. So that's a big one. Uh, and... This kind of goes back to the first permaculture principle is observing and interacting because when you have these temperature fluctuations and we've certainly experienced them in the past couple of weeks, uh, you can see it in your plants. You can see the stress, yep. right? Some uh, plants will bolt, you'll come back three days later and then there's an extra seven centimetres on the top of the, of the lettuce plant. This is my, <laughs> this is my coriander. Uh, yeah. Not last weekend, the one before. We went to Mount Hotham for the weekend and when I left, we had coriander, maybe 10, 15 centimetres high, mm -hmm. bushy, beautiful. I was like, oh, I'm looking forward to some Mexican food next week. And then we came back and they were 
three feet tall with flowers covered in flowers coriander can be notorious <laughs> for that one for bolting i'm just going to start growing it in pure shade i think that's the way to do it grow <laughs> under trees only um but you know really observing that and and observing observing the weather forecast mm-hmm. and if you are going away uh putting things in place to make sure that you know when that change of weather happens that your garden can get through the other end without bolting or even worse, dying mm. or getting really damaged. So that's a big one. Um, yeah, and then adaptable planting and plant diversity. This goes for so many of these um, permaculture principles, but a diverse garden is one that will weather the storm better. Um, mm. Not just diversity of plant species, uh, but diversity of varieties because you'll find over time that that type of tomato you've always loved and always grown, five years from now, maybe won't work anymore. Or you'll have to adjust the timing of when you plant um, based on on what that weather is looking like, based on whether it's an El Nino or La Nina year. Speaking of La Nina, this does make me think about the community farm that we we work at uh, or we volunteer for where we had the two La Nina years in a row. I think it was two. 19 and 20 maybe or 20, no, it was, it 20 was, and 21? I think it was 21, 22. Could be, yeah. I yep. think it was because it was October or November last year when, you know, half of the farm space got flooded mm-hmm. and uh, it had never been that bad, the flooding. This is a great – actually, it's a really mm. good opportunity to talk about how do, how do we adapt to change because obviously in our planning for – the, the, with with the committee and with the group at the at the farm at um, Downs Community Farm, mm. we've actually had to rethink where do we actually structure things. Yeah. Do, do are we going to use this as a um, <clears throat> in three years time if we've got community beds in this spot, will it flood and people won't be able to access their community beds? Um, those sorts of considerations. So, yeah, there's definitely a real world application to this managing and. Um, I like how you keep on re- referring back to building resilience. Yeah. That, that's a really great one. It seems to resonate. Lovely. I love to hear that. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, that's the big one. Uh, the last little thing I wanted to talk about with this is, you know, the, the more societal change that we're seeing at the moment. So, you know, cost of living um, and just people struggling a lot more um, with basic cost of you know vegetables or even just finding housing Mm -hmm. the importance that home gardening uh and and growing food particularly and and community farms and community gardens plays in creatively responding to change so you know food co-ops you know food swaps getting in touch with your neighbors um you know one thing i'm gonna do um i'm giving the idea away but this is a free idea for anyone is i'm gonna start letter dropping every house in my immediate area, um, telling them, hey, I grow food. Hey, I've got chickens. I've got eggs. If you grow food and you want to swap some stuff, let's get in touch, right? Mm. Because, again, if we're talking about, you know, resilience and, um, you know, particular the sort of self-sufficiency kind of things, not that that's something necessarily that you should aim for, but community resilience is something that you should aim for, I think. And we're kind of missing in this day and age. Mm. And we're going to need it more and more as the world changes. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox in a no, second, no, Brennan. No. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, you and I in our gardens, we're pretty good gardeners. We can't feed our families 
just off of what we grow in our gardens. Not yet. We, not yet. And we certainly don't have the space, I would think, yeah. just yet in, in our homes. Um, but if we know people around us that, you know, one person has a couple of fruit trees and one person just loves growing beans and that's all they do. You have a potato person, you have a seed swap person. Mm. Building these connections um, will enable that trade and for you to start providing more and more of your own food and sort of alleviate some of that, um, yeah, some of that difficulty that's coming with the societal change side of things. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'll leave it there. Otherwise, I will just keep going down this rabbit hole. But no, no, I want to add on. Please do. <laughs> no food miles. You get to reduce the food miles. Your food doesn't have to travel anywhere. You know exactly. You've grown it yourself. You know where it's come from. Tastes tons better. Yeah. It's, it's countless. Um, uh, yeah, so highly encourage it. <laughs> I yeah. love the idea. And look, I mean, see, see how many of these connections you can build. This is my, this is my, um, this is my activity for people mm-hmm. for the next couple of weeks is have a think about how you might be able to connect with your neighbours um, and maybe start even just a simple one-for-one trade. So, you know, one of my neighbours, uh, John, grows cherries in his backyard. He doesn't have a huge backyard, but he grows cherries and we get a punnet every year. So this year uh, we gave him some eggs from my chickens and it's just a nice little, you know, nice little swap, you yeah. know. Um, see how many of those you can set up uh, or just have a think about how or have a look for any local groups that do food swaps. Dan's Community Farm is obviously one option where, you know, it's less of a food swap, more of a come do a bit of work, take as much food as you can carry in your arms. But try and find some of this in your local area and um, – yeah, make that a part of how you sort of really positively move towards what is a little bit of an uncertain future at the moment. Um, and that's... I'll mention a couple of food swaps later on when we get to events as well awesome. because I found some. Excellent. There we go. But that is that is it. That is the 12 permaculture principles. I'll go through them once again, one by one. I'll just, <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll read them out. So yeah. observe and interact. Catch and store energy, obtain a yield, apply self-regulation and accept feedback, use and value renewable resources and services, produce no waste or minimize waste, design from patterns down to details, integrate rather than segregate, use slow and small solutions, one of my personal favorites, understand, use and value diversity, use edges and value the marginal, and creatively use and respond to change. Gosh, this isn't just about permaculture. This is about people, I think, as well. Oh, you're getting it now. Because uh, <laughs> the three ethics of permaculture that all of um, underpins all of this are earth care, people care, and fair share, which is really what growing food is about, I think. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, my, my strong book recommendation, if you really want to go – deep, deep, deep on this and you do live in a suburban or a semi-rural environment, um, there's so many good ones. Retro Suburbia is, of course, the I think the gold, one of the gold standard books written, of course, by, by the man himself, David Holmgren. Uh, it's quite a tome, um, but it is available online at uh, Meliodora Publishing, I believe, if you just search Retro Suburbia Permaculture. You'll get there online and I do believe you can access parts of that book potentially, maybe even the whole book online for free. 
Hey. Um, you know, not as a PDF, but like as a go page by page online. Um, or you can spend, it's not a cheap book, but that's worth doing. Uh, there's also The Good Life by Hannah Maloney, who you might know from Gardening Australia. Um, there's some great books by Rosemary Morrow, um, by a few others. Um, if you just want to, if you just want a little introduction, get your non-gardening people into this sort of thinking. Uh, uh, frugal hedonism is a good one. The art of the art of frugal hedonism by Adam Grubb um, is another good one as well. So, yeah. Did well, I mention I picked up the weed foraging handbook? Ah, did you? Yes. Yes. Well, my what my wife com she was uh, uh, kind enough to pick it up when she was in Warburton last and uh, brought a copy home. So have you, you had to look through it already? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Have you started identifying? <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, yeah, that's another good one as well. Also, also by Adam Grubb uh, and Co. And yeah, let's uh, let's take it to another song. Mm-hmm. Another. <laughs> Another good title. Aptly named. For what we've talked. Aptly named, of course. Uh, this one is by Glass Animals and it is Heat Waves. Hi, everybody. This is Wit from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisces about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karam and get down with the good vibes. Hello, welcome back. We are back. Yes, and uh, once again, that was Heatwaves by Glass Animals. And we are Brendan and Henry, and this is The Gardening Show. On Radio Karen. Uh, just if you did have time and you've got any questions, let's throw out that line again. We're always happy to receive texts at any time. Um, the number is 0493... Two one three eight three one, and once again oh four nine three two one three eight three one, and feel free to text us in. Keep us company on this gardening journey. That's it. Doesn't even have to be a question. It can just be a comment. Yep. Happy to receive. Yeah. <laughs> even if it's even if it's constructive, <laughs> I promise you we'll read it out. Uh, but yeah, let's let's get into um, our last section. I was sort of doing it in two parts. We'll break it up a little bit. But um, something I've alluded to alluded to, I've very specifically talked about several times, which is the importance, I think, in a home garden uh, and generally speaking, of capturing water, capturing rainwater specifically um, because uh, for many reasons, but I think really the main reason for me is uh, it's, well, once it's set up, it's free. Um, Not that water is particularly expensive, but if we're talking about change, we're talking about resilience, we're talking about cost of living, um, it is, I think, a really worthy investment. Mm. But in a home garden, I think, you know, if you think about it, how are plants normally watered? Rain. So that's what they want. Uh, they don't, of course, you can totally water plants with treated water, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not going to be as good for the plant as uh, the stuff that falls from the sky. So why not give them what they need to succeed? So. Yeah, uh, I'll start with a question for you though, Brendan. Um, have you made any any headway in towards towards your decision uh, of rainwater? What are you thinking your system might look like? I know you've put thought into it. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking we're going to have a couple of poly barrels, okay, so food safe barrels, 
<coughs> which we're going to pop next to the downpipes and try and redirect from one of the roof down li- downpipes. Um, and then what I'd like to do is also get a larger tank um, for a little bit more long-term storage. Um, <coughs> so I'm thinking at least 500 litres for the larger tank and then for the smaller tanks, I'd probably say about a drum size, maybe 180 to 200 litres to 20 litres thereabouts. Okay, that's good. So I'm thinking three drums and a water tank, I hope. We'll see how we go. Nice, nice. I will tell you why that's wrong later. No, <laughs> no, no. But um, that, that that's good that you've thought about uh, uh, different methods. I like the idea of the kind of real simple DIY: get a downpipe diverter, sort of cut into your downpipe, stick it in there, and just have it go straight into a barrel. It's mm-hmm. such an especially if you use watering cans. The, the, and you know this from the farm: the ability to fill a watering can. Uh, the speed at which you can feed uh, fill a nine-liter watering can increases dramatically if you can shove that entire thing into a barrel of water. Yep, fills up in two seconds. Absolutely, yep. It's uh, a great system. I don't have that in my at my place, but I'm thinking of perhaps doing that and diverting some of my rain tank water into a barrel for that purpose. Now, historically, I've also uh, created a drip line feed from yep. from a tap. Um, so ah, that okay. had a little timer on it and it was a very, just a very cheap, windy, clicky timer. Oh, the old school ones, yeah. And, and uh, some drip hose. So essentially just small pinholes in the side that yep. wasn't allowing it to shoot up and spray everywhere, but it would just drip out of the out of the pipe as it went. And I tried to wring them through the garden yep. slightly, slightly under the surface of the soil. Um, to keep it down and uh, it worked in some respects. I think I'd like to set up, I think from what I, what didn't work on that was again consistency, setting it up to an automated timer I think would be yeah. really great. Did you find that that drip line clogged up? No, actually it was, it was pretty good. Okay, that's good. It's pretty good. So that it's is still got pressure at at both ends of the drip line. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's that's one of the concerns with drip line is that it can get clogged, mm. um, particularly the ones that have those water slowing sections in them. So there's the the real cheapo ones, which is just the line with the little pinprick holes in it every 15, 20, 30, 40 centimetres, whatever type you buy. Um, they're actually the better ones than the I think the more expensive ones that are designed to slow the water down mm-hmm. uh, because those – mechanisms that are in the pipe to slow the water down a bit um they clog up very easily actually so Mm. this is one where i recommend the slightly cheaper option is is actually a a better fit and it's a lot easier to flush those ones out if they do get clogged um but we'll get into that before we start with this though uh the important thing to to think about when we're collecting water is how much can we collect Mm. (laughs) right so how do we work out our collection area so it's actually very simple to work out. I mean, the best way to work it out would be to, to get a rain gauge and actually figure out over time how much water is falling on in, in my area because if we look at average rainfall in Melbourne or even in a more localised area, it's still going to vary somewhat from house to house, from street to street. So more information is better. This is why you get your garden diary, you have a section just for water, and you really, throughout the first year that you live in a garden or that you are 
looking to implement a water system, you should collect water, of course, maybe something a little bit more DIY like barrels. Mm -hmm. And before you go down the tank route, get some good data uh, on how much you would be able to collect, but also how much do you need? And this is the big point uh, that I want to bring up is, so first of all, we'll we'll go into how, how do we work out how much rain falls on our roof. That's actually pretty simple. You get your average millimeters per year. If you want to work out your rainfall in a year, let's just go with the basic average millimeters, um, which you can find on the BOM website, the Bureau of Meteorology. And you times that number, those millimeters, by the, the area of your roof. So, you know, you might have to get up there with a tape measure <laughs> and account for the fact that roofs are on angles sometimes, but work out the rough area that you have of roof space times the annual rainfall in your area and that's going to give you a rough amount of water that's going to fall every year. Then you might also want to account for a loss of water. So let's say the number that comes out is, I don't know, a gigalitre or something, whatever it is. Um, Maybe it's going to be 90% of that that you actually have the ability to capture so we're thinking evaporation, evaporation, all, all sorts of splashing off the roof. Yep. You know, maybe your gutter gets a bit blocked and it's kind of spilling over the edge. You know, whatever. There's so many ways it can it can come off. So that's that's one piece of information that you need. That's crucial. Is what can you actually capture? But the other piece of information is how much do you need? Because most people would assume that bigger is better when it comes to rain tanks. But that's not necessarily the case. What you don't want is water sitting in your water tank for a long time. So you actually don't want to get a water tank that's too big. Mm. You want a water tank that you know you can use up fully um, but be able to refill at a nice sort of ratio where you're not doing without um, but you're not having water sitting there for ages. And that's the sweet spot of the size of tank that you want. That's a great insight. I just already made you think twice about the... Yeah, I just made me question the 500-litre tank. <laughs> this is a, this is one of those things. I, I, you know, I, I very luckily, when I moved into my place, had a water tank in already. Um, I think it's 2,000 litres from memory, which is already actually too big for my garden. Mm, you know? Fascinating. Um, it It is almost always totally full and it is the only thing I use to water my garden. So... You might find that a couple of rain barrels is enough or a slimline 200-litre tank or something mm. might actually be more suitable for your garden space. Again, it depends on your garden space. And as I said, the other part of it is working out how much water you need. Now, you can get really granular with this. You can look into every single plant in your garden and go online and search its water requirements <laughs> in its season or its lifetime and you can add all of that up and then you can add all of them together and thinking about change and what you might have in that garden, then you might also think about your fruit trees. As they get bigger, they're going to need more water, but at some stage they'll need less because they'll be getting their own water. from the. And you start to see where it gets really... Mm-hmm. Sounds like how long is a piece of string? Yeah, I guess we can. You can. I'm getting that you can look into it and delve as much as you want. Yes, Um, you can take it down to that micro level or or a bit more of a macro level. Definitely, but look again. If you're unsure, err on the side of bigger tank is better. 
in terms of what you can afford. Um, it's always better to go a little bit bigger. But when that happens, a good point of note um, is, you know, if we know that we're getting a, a big rain event coming, uh, is perhaps emptying your tank yep. completely, flushing it out so that you can fill it fresh with brand new water. You'd be surprised how how quickly a 200-litre water tank can fill up. Mm. It took me two days to fill it up, two days of rain. Wow. I completely emptied it, completely filled it up in two days. So that's, you know, totally do it. Sorry, I say 2,000 litre, not 200, 2,000 litre tank. So, yeah, this is just things to consider when you're putting in um, a system, your collection surface. Um, again, different surfaces will will be more efficient than others. Obviously, a tin roof is going to be very efficient. Um, dark sort of concrete tiles, like what I have on, on my house, um, you know, particularly if it's raining when it's hot, a lot more is going to evaporate off. So things to consider. Yeah, not to scare anyone away from it because I think everyone should get a, should get a water tank. Um, and then, yeah, a few things that we need to think about is, of course, making sure that the water that goes into the tank is is clean. Yep. So, so we're thinking filtration. Filtration. So getting rid of leaves, bugs, that sort of stuff. Excellent. Or and trying to not let that get into the system in the first place, I would assume. Definitely. And yeah, my system is, is very simple. Uh, it was a very DIY job when it was put in. It's a pipe that just goes straight onto the opening of the water tank, which has a, a, a grate on it. Mm-hmm. But these days, um, you probably want to do a two-stage mesh filter. So one is actually at the downpipe itself, which has like a removable filter. And then that goes into the tank that, and then the tank itself has its own thing as well. So two stages and just making sure, you know, before a big rain that you really clean out, you know, all the stuff that is on there. Um, when I moved into the house, there was a plant growing in the filter part. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so yep. all the debris had become soil and it was basically growing in there. So making sure that you clean that uh, and trying to keep that as clean as possible. Yep. If you're going to be drinking this water, that's a whole nother kettle of fish that I don't want to go into. I'm just talking about um, gardening, gardening, watering plants. Yep. yep. Um, there are methods to get water tested uh, for drinking water. Mm. Uh, but again, that, that's that's with something like ALS or a laboratory service. Definitely. So, yep. you know, and, and look, not to say that's not a a good thing to aim for, but you need to have the system in place that can support that. Yep. So we're also talking a first flush filter, which is like a little section of pipe that comes off and the first bit of water that comes in goes into there and all the debris should end up in there and then then the water goes into the tank. That enables you to get some of that off beforehand. So, yeah, lots of things to think about. Um, what about... A question for you, Brendan, is is what type of tank are you thinking of? What material, what shape, what size? Well, you said the size, but, you know, have you had to think about um, what what sort of tank? Mm, I think at this stage I was probably thinking of the, the that blue food-grade um, plastic, heavy-duty plastic yep. or thick plastic. Uh, it's about probably half a centimetre thick or maybe a little bit less, okay. uh, 40 mil thick, 30 mil thick. Um, <clears throat> so it's a reasonably thick, heavy-duty plastic. Uh, I would also consider, 
I don't know. What other, what other tanks are out there? I don't know. Um, this is unfamiliar territory well, for me. I mean, if we're just talking tanks. Concrete? Concrete tanks? Definitely. Yeah, exactly. That's one of them. So concrete tanks. Uh, these days, not as common. But mm. as you know, we obviously volunteer on a farm that has three. I think it's three concrete tanks. Tin? Tin is another one. Or, or you know, galvanised. Galvanised. Galvanised steel, steel, right? Yep. Uh, tin tanks. So... I think how big is our one at the farm? It's hundred thousand liters. Hundred thousand liters. It's it's big. It's a massive tank. It's, yeah. uh, it's a couple of caravans. <laughs> it's it's pretty big. Um, so yeah, that's metal tanks are obviously great. Um, you know they can be they can be cheap. They can be expensive. I think with those ones you get what you pay for. Mm. Poly tanks are the more common one that you'll see. Um, those sort of thinner taller ones that um, can be long against a wall or just a big um, tube or something. If you don't have a lot of space but maybe you have a deck with space underneath, you can get bladders mm-hmm. um, that go under your deck or that you can you can even bury a cistern in the garden. I've seen one of our, one of our friends has put a, a water tank into the garden into and the, under the under the ground yeah. um, in, in a section and that holds, I think, 5,000 litres. Wow, okay. Um, and... Happened to be that a natural spring was running through the property and diverted water from the natural spring um, that just popped up through the bottom, through the garden and oh, wow. and fills up the water. <laughs> All manner of systems, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. So, yeah, other things to consider: overflow system. This yep. is this is this goes without saying, of course. Um, you know, they will obviously tell you this when you're installing them, or you get someone to install them, is to have an overflow at the top that goes into your stormwater drain. Um, but if you're constantly, if that's constantly coming out the top, your tank's probably too big or you're not using enough water <laughs> for your plants. That was, that was my first thought or first like little mental roadblock mm. when I was thinking, how do I get, if I've got a big thing, a big um, poly tank and it's sitting at the bottom of a gutter downpipe, what happens when it fills up and it starts overflowing? Do I want it to spill out everywhere or do I want it to divert it somewhere else? Um, so that was one consideration that I had, which... I hadn't quite gotten past, but I like to tell that you're telling me that we've got overflow systems. Of course, there would be. I just yeah. didn't know what they. They all have how, a, what they, all, how they work. They usually have a yeah a, a similar size hole at the top for a you know 90 mil pipe, mm. sort of the standard thing gutter size um, that you can then run out and go straight into your normal stormwater drain. Um, so they'll all have that, and it's definitely something you should use. But, of course, in the next section, we'll talk about perhaps where some of that overflow water can go instead. So thinking about a pond or a bog mm-hmm. or you know any number of um, water type features that you can implement in the garden. Uh, so yeah, that's it. And the last little thing, I think, um, two little things to talk about. Number one is obviously a pumping system. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to get this water out? Because the sheer weight of water pushing down on where the water comes out the bottom is not enough to push it through a hose. Uh, you do need some sort of a pump. So this can be either an electric pump, which is what I have. It sits under the deck and it's it's plugged in. It's always, like, always plugged in, but it doesn't run until it gets the pressure of me turning on a tap or pulling the trigger on the hose that creates a sort of a, a pressure suck and then that pushes water into the pump and the pump starts up mm. and runs. So it does it automatically and when it's not doing that, it's not drawing power and that just gives it a little bit of a kick so that I can water. 
uh, from the tank. But you can also, there's solar versions of that. Uh, or if you want to be really lo-fi, build your tank up high and use gravity. Yeah, That's I was going to say. It. Particularly if you're just using that tank to fill barrels or something or um, you know, just using the tap on the, on the tank to, to fill a watering can. Um, obviously There'll be enough pressure case, in there as opposed to a hose pressure requirement. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I've got, you know, a 30-meter retractable reel and I've got pipe going under the deck to get to that. You do need some pressure. So you have to think about how does that water get out of the tank? Mm. I have seen in some farm designs where, um, where possible to have the pond situated at a higher point on the farm for gravity feed irrigation to, to happen, um, which I think is fascinating, but also going into the idea of biofiltration, yeah. um, which I think is a really fascinating topic uh, in in how you could set up multiple different, how streets might drain water into, into channels and how you could use natural irrigations and filtering systems to clean water or to mm. get it to a cleaner standard before it goes back into the larger system or out into the environment or into the into the bay. Absolutely. Last little thing, uh, maintenance. Maintenance. Like yep. any sort of system at all, but certainly one where you are putting, you know, a, a built structure or a structure of some kind, it does need maintenance. Um, so, you know, I'm, I don't maintain mine as much as I need to because it is just for watering plants. Um, but if I was perhaps using it to go into a pond or something, I would be doing a lot more checks of the water quality, um, over time. Um, even it might be a good idea once a year to, to take a sample and send it off, um, to a testing company and checking it for algae or pathogens or whatever it might be. Um, or even just completely emptying your tank and giving it a really good clean, which might be tricky depending on the type of tank that you have. Um, but finding some way to to give it a, a full refresh every now and again. Again, you'd be surprised how quickly a couple of days of rain can completely fill a tank from scratch. So don't feel that you're wasting this water. It's It fell from the sky. It's free. Mm. And we live in Melbourne. At least for the time being, it's going to rain no matter what, <laughs> as we know. Mm. Um, but finally, Brendan, um, I guess, what are some of the benefits yes. of rainwater harvesting? Uh, well, I, I, one thing I really love is, uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times, is lifting the pressure off our existing systems. Yeah. Uh, or lifting, yeah. So we're talking reducing a demand on a traditional water source um, like our taps. Um, you mentioned before, really, natural rainwater is going to be the best way to, to, to water your plants. Um, we don't want... Where possible, tap water has been treated. There is chemicals and things that have been popped in to, mm. to make it healthy to, for us to drink, which yep. is fantastic. And we're in Melbourne. We are very lucky to be having such amazing water quality straight oh, yeah. out of the tap in many instances. Very, very lucky, in fact, yeah. Um, uh, lowering water bills. So reducing the water bill. Uh, we want to mitigate storm ro- water runoff as well. So not going into the streets or essentially clogging up Mm. the streets as much as possible and we provide ourselves with a local and sustainable water source which is a win-win for us. It's a win-win, right? Yeah. So, yeah, if you don't have a lot of money to spend uh, or you're not sure about it, yeah, how much do those those food-safe 
blue barrels cost? Not not a huge amount. Nothing. You can get one for twenty bucks, right? On mm. on like on, on on the marketplace or whatever, and um, just make sure it is food grade. So there'll be ones that used we're used to store typically things like olive oil or you know perhaps um, other kinds of other kinds of food stuffs, and um, give them a good clean before you use them. And just if you want a, a simple water diverter, downpipe diverter, you can buy them from the big green box shop and it's just you cut out a, a section of your downpipe, you stick it in there and it just has like a little tap thing on the side. It's the most simple and easy way to just every time it rains, some of it will come out of there and, and fill up your tank. And don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty certain now as part of the new rental laws that were bought in in the state, um, you are as a renter allowed to install one of these in your home. If it, if it doesn't home. have one? If it doesn't have one. Oh. I'm pretty sure. Double check that. But last I checked and I heard it from a pretty good source, but I'm, I'm not totally sure. So definitely double check. But um, I'm pretty sure that that is totally doable uh, and legal if it's done correctly. Mm. So that's a very simple system. That's probably going to cost you a couple of hundred, a hundred bucks maybe in total. Yep. <laughs> yep. So there you go. Um, but yeah, let's go to a, <laughs> a very aptly named song again before we talk a bit about some of the ways we can use this water. Um, so this song is by the wonderful Paul Kelly and it is, of course, Deeper Water. G'day everyone, I'm AC from Friday Night Frothies, also very involved in the sporting club. We're here today at the grand opening. Any opportunity I get, I'll be listening to Radio Carrum. Love it. Welcome. Thank you. And welcome back to the gardening show on Radio Carrum. Thank you, AC from Friday Night Frothies for yes. back announcing that one. That's it. Who was that? That was... Paul Kelly. Paul Kelly. The ever, great. The ever wonderful Paul Kelly with Deeper Water. Great, great music selection tonight. That's thank it. You. Thank, thank you, Henry. Thank you too. Thank you, sir. You've done. Uh, we've done, we've done good this. <laughs> I like it. It's actually really fun to pick out know, the, right? the corny, cheesy, different sort of watering and gardening songs. <laughs> I, I feel like we could keep this up forever. No, we're <laughs> doing well. So many terms that we can search, but um, yeah, the last little bit on on water. So, talking a little bit more about. Uh, so we talked about capture. Let's talk a little bit about usage um, because obviously watering our plants is, is a very simple way to look at it but there's lots of ways that we can do that um, and lots of other ways we can use this water mm, yeah so, absolutely well well mentioned um, and so really this is very much a continuation of what we were just talking about with uh, in in that water um, so starting off on the usage side, we've talk, talked about capture and storage. Now usage, irrigation systems. So just mentioning really quickly about irrigation, a couple of different types of irrigation mm. systems that we will maybe familiar with. Uh, but we did mention one before, which was a drip irrigation. And essentially, this is where we deliver water directly to the base of the plants through our tubes, through a network of tubing and emitters, uh, minimizing water waste. And mm. I think that for me, drip irrigation from that standpoint is really brilliant. Yeah. Much less water being used for the plants, really delivering water to where it needs to go and also the idea of not um, top watering. Yes. So not watering straight onto foliage um, and allowing it to stay underneath again, reducing 
opportunity for disease and, and pests and yep. things. We talked about a soaker hose. Um, or no, we didn't talk about a soaker hose, but we will. A soaker <laughs> hose is another irrigation system. It is um, so these are a porous hose. Essentially, it's a. I think what sticks into my mind is the green semi-transparent hoses. Yeah. Um, where it would have pinholes sort of all along it and it provides, again, a slow, steady watering method, but sometimes they might jet up out of the gr- yeah, <laughs> off yeah. the ground about 10 or 15 centimetres. And then lastly, in the irrigation system, um, we've got sprinkler systems there. So there's going to be lots of other different irrigation systems that you can use, of course. These are just a couple of very common ones. Um, but you can connect up a spring sprinkler system through to your rainwater tanks or over, uh, for overhead watering and... It, um, the idea of this would be over potentially a larger area. Yeah. So sprinkler systems often we'll see on sports grounds and lawns and that sort of thing. Um, but obviously it can be used in more targeted areas and smaller mm. scale areas as well. There are also like very small sprinklers that you can get mm. that are movable. So mm-hmm. you can just kind of plonk them in when you've maybe planted out a garden just to give it a really good soak mm. and then just pull it out and put it somewhere else. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Not, it's not just those pop-up ones from the classic pop-up in the lawn yep. um, reticulation. There's there's different kinds of sprinklers uh, for different situations. Don't think it's just for grass. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, we we obviously used to we, we talked about uh, a few different things. We all know about watering cans and buckets. We spoke about gravity-fed irrigation before, um, and that's where we're elevating the rainwater tanks for to to feed with gravity. Um, what else? We're talking ponds, ponds and water features. Mm. I do like the odd pond. It's a great little microclimate. It's I, want, s- I want a pond so badly, but it's I think it's one where you need to have. If you have kids, they need to be of an age where it's safe to have a pond. Yes. Yeah. Um, which not in my case for, for a while yet. <laughs> You're probably getting closer to it. Almost. A couple Almost. of years off still maybe. years off. <laughs> yeah. But I do like the idea of this. And one of the ones that I've seen as a, a small gardening pond um, over at Joy of the Earth uh, oh, the yeah. community garden. They've set up some old bathtubs with a couple of submersible pumps in there to keep the air uh, going, essentially, yeah. to keep yeah. it aerated. And with a few koi fish in there, and oh, yeah. wow. it's just it's it's a great it's a great little feature in that spot. So it's essentially keeping up a, its own little microclimate as well, um, and it's going to be attracting, as you mentioned last time resilience a bit it's going to be attracting different insects mm. um different creatures and animals to to come and use the, that water as a bit of a water source as well and um building out that area yeah, naturally there's, there's also plants that edible plants that grow in water mm. grow water chestnuts and things like that water chestnuts um, yeah. and and probably a lot more that i can't recall right now but you know it's a good way to grow something a little bit different especially mm. something that might be a bit expensive in the shops so, um, yeah, if you have the space. So we're talking in this respect, um, we're talking using the water that we've captured and this could be ideally to, to fill up a pond. If you wanted yeah. to install and fill up a pond, it would be a great use of water. Or an aquaponics system. Mm, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> if you want to go on a deep dive on that. It's a few episodes back, but... Um, Go back in time and have a listen to our aquaponics, aeroponics discussions Uh, and hydroponics. Um, Mulching. 
Mulching, absolutely. Applying mulch around the plants from a water conservation point of view. Mm. Um, You mentioned before when soil heats up, it's going to dry out. If we can leave a good layer of mulch around our plants and in our garden beds, in many instances that's going to help reduce the amount of water evaporation and water loss that's that's occurring. Mm. Um, It's also going to reduce the frequency that we have to water. Yep. So again, you, you've you've mentioned it a couple of times. It is the go-to trick: stick a finger in the soil. If it comes out and it's totally dry, give it a good soak. Yeah. If you don't believe the mulching thing, this is just gardeners being gardeners. <laughs> Do it. Set up a test. Get two little pots. Just put soil in each of them. Put mulch on one, not on the other. Give them both a full water. Come back the next day and see how much water is in one compared to the other. And the difference is stark. Pot, you know. Pots actually especially I find pots can be mulched well as well. Yeah. So pots can very quickly dry out. Especially terracotta pots, mm. por- porous pots. And and black plastic, of course, heats up very quickly. So So putting a thick mul- mulch layer or even like sometimes I've seen a geofabric um, mm. with a cutout where a base of a plant might sit and then it sits as almost a carpet around it yes. to keep everything a little bit more suppressed but still natural. Um, so mulching is a great way for water saving, but also for where we use our water. Um, rain barrels, we spoke about quite mm. a few times, uh, and essentially anything that's going to be a container to capture water should, can be considered into a rain barrel. But can strategically placing them around, the, it doesn't have to have a feed-in source. You'll still capture some water, just not as much. Obviously, if we can get it off a roof or any feed-in source, it's going to be a little bit better. Mm. If you want to go down the real permaculture route um this is less related to rainwater specifically but even um you know water that yeah gray water so Mm -hmm. to speak you know have a shower collect some of that shower water i know somebody that stands in a bucket when they shower yep Yep. and then takes that water out and waters with it you know so lots of lots of good tricks there on how to use water effectively uh one that i really like the idea of and I'm sure in the future I will implement this in a, in a future garden, is is a rain garden. So this is uh, a garden that's designed essentially to capture and absorb rainwater runoff um, or can be fed from a, a water tank system. Um, yeah, but basically uh, something that slows down the water and allows it to percolate into the ground more deeply. So great thing to plant amongst trees perhaps, um, trees that you're trying to establish and fruit trees. Um, so that could be sort of like a, a long snaking channel with um, sort of gravel throughout it, mm-hmm, plants mm-hmm. all around it, and just kind of stopping the water from 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 running. Uh, because uh, a fun little fact about water runoff is uh, the, the slope, I guess, um, to that would switch water from running off uh, to sort of sinking in is is actually very shallow. Mm, I think it's mm. like 400 to one. So, you know, for every four meters of length, one centimeter of drop, anything steeper than that can cause water, depending on your soil type, of course, mm. to, to actually just run right off. Yep. So, you know, you really want to slow it down, especially if you have a quite a large garden with a lot of slope. Mm. Think of ways that you can, and I will not say the permaculture, build a swale. <laughs> it's a whole nother, whole nother thing, more for a bigger system. But um, think of ways to 
to ensure that the water that you do capture, whether it's directly into a tank or just naturally on your site, is being diverted around your garden. How many times have we seen uh, a, like a gravel uh, country style, a, a steep gravel driveway yeah. and water's run off and created a divot channel? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's almost its own little river. Absolutely. Um, so think of ways you can use that to your advantage. I actually, I've got a colleague who uh, lives up in the hills and yep. uh, along the side of the house they, they created a, a rock stream and filtration system oh, to awesome. divert that water uh, rather than running uh, through the property essentially yeah. uh, to have a path and a place for it to go. Uh, it's worked a treat and I think it, it took a, a fair bit to set up but it looks brilliant, it looks, uh, it looks amazing. He's happy with the results and the family's happy as well. One thing I did want to mention just here as mm. well, we've, we're talking about saving water. Sometimes there, is, there are situations where there is too much water uh, yeah. on a property and you can have sometimes perhaps it's out of your control but you've got water coming in from an adjacent property through your property and then out the other side of the property. Yeah. And this is where, you know, you could think have a look at solutions like potentially this sort of a natural um, creek bed or a dry creek bed or what's called a French drain, which is yep. where you dig a big trench and essentially fill that with um, with rock yes. uh, and allow that to collect, gather the water and channel it to run it off in a certain one spot, one discharge point, as opposed to mm. having water all across the backyard and flooding and <laughs> swamping everything. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good point, especially if those with bigger gardens or, you know, lots of slopes around your area. But even just in a suburban environment, it can happen if things just line up that way. Um, yeah, you know, it, it could be a really bad thing, but you can turn it into an advantage. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Never going to run out of water if you've got you, that much exactly. water coming through. <laughs> if you have a lovely neighbour with a really badly designed driveway, use it to your advantage, <laughs> get that water. Um, and yeah, the last, I guess the last little point is if, you know, we are looking, uh, we're talking about irrigation systems. Um, you know, right now, you mentioned before the old style little, you know, wind up irrigation timer. Yep. Um, that's, a, that's a classic and, you know, if you want to go that method, you can go that method. I've seen some very intricate, you know, systems using that method with, you know, a pipe is sort of split into eight different turned timers for mm -hmm. eight different garden beds and they've all got their own thing. That's totally a good way to do it. But these days you can you can you can be smart with it and there are smart irrigation controllers, um, fully digital, programmable ones that you can attach to um, weather monitoring stations um, that adjust what the irrigation controller is doing depending on whether there has been rain um, and the ambient temperature and pressure and it can get really intricate and deep. Um, if you want to go down that path, you don't have to go the full you know, the full nine yards. I mean, you can just get a, a simple smart irrigation controller, maybe that hooks up to your phone or is just there on the wall and that's it. But this is the one time I will say, spend the money. Hmm. Buy the best one you can afford. Um, because having seen these in um, used in, in systems, I, I find that the, the cheaper ones that you find just don't last as long. Hmm. Um, so 
you know, if you want to get a really good smart irrigation controller, be prepared to spend $500 even, you know, or at least two, $300 at the very least um, if you want a, a good proper one. Uh, this is not one where you want to cheap out because it is – it's a bit of a buy once, cry once. Mm. Um, you don't want to be spending $50 every year when one of these things carks it. So just a note, definitely do your research, read reviews. Um, yeah, that's it. And I think this is really – it's an interesting concept, the idea of smart irrigation, how mm. we monitor it and how we use – how we take advantage of technology to potentially help us be a bit smarter in how we apply certain things. So yeah. water is obviously a resource as well. And often, you know, <laughs> I've got this little picture in my head of a grandparent going out with the hose and then just putting it on full and leaving it at the base of the tree and walking up for a half an hour or so to let the let the garden and let the trees um, get some water. But... Um, Using water smartly to what mm. the plants need, how much they need, and our ability to control that using and utilising technology, I think, in the future is going to become a bit more prevalent um, and something that I think we can use to our advantage. Absolutely. So, yeah, see it as a benefit. So, there you go. Um, so, what are the benefits of using collected rainwater in a garden just to wrap this all up? Mm. Um, well, as we said before, I mean, it reduces the resilience on municipal you know, city water, which is really good. Um, you know, lowering your water bills and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I'm actually just repeating what we said before, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Um, similar sort of maintenance, similar sort of benefits, using water. That's it. Check your drip line. Yep. Make sure it's still dripping. Uh, flush it out every now and again. Um, check all the, you know, if you're putting it together with all the connecting bits, Double check those um, because they can, they're can they notorious for breaking sometimes. Um, and just making sure that you're you know, monitoring the level of water in, in your rain barrels or in your water tank uh, or in a pond or whatever system you have um, to ensure that you're getting through water well, your water is being cycled and you're not breeding algae and mosquitoes and things like that. Yes. Really important. Yep. Nobody likes mosquitoes. There you go. So there's water. Now, yeah, as I said before, now I will, I will lay off the water talk for a while <laughs> uh, unless it's specifically about how much you should water a particular variety of plant. <laughs> but um, have a look into it. I think it's it's something that if you if you have a garden, you should be looking into doing. Yep. Even if it's a few pots, collect it in a bucket. Just don't waste that resource. Great suggestion. So that is wrapping it up in terms of our topics. There you go. We do have a few events because there is a fair bit on at the moment. It is. It's because it's Urban Agri- it's urban Agriculture Month. Yes. November. Check, check this out online. Um, jump onto Urban Agriculture Month. Uh, simply pop it into Google, see what comes, uh, and it will be likely the first result. Mm. Um, but online and see events near you. There's a map, and basically what you can do on this map is zoom all the way down to your local area. It has got stuff all over Australia. Um, but if you are if you have a keen eye and are zooming down into our local Frankston Bayside area, mm. you may even see us there. Um, but what like a little picture of us on the there map, is, yeah. little, little people. There yep. you go. For, for tonight's episode and for Get next, next episode. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. Because that will happen in November as well on mm. the 24th, I think. Uh, yep. um, 
what have we got Saturday? This Saturday coming up the 18th. Yes. So Downs Community Farm has its monthly big dig working bee from 10 until 1. Um, so we'll do some work in the garden uh, and then we'll have a nice potluck lunch. Uh, or if you'll just feel free to come around and have a visit, bring the family, uh, get a tour of the farm. If you want to help out, that's fine. If you just want to sit and have a cup of tea or have a picnic, do whatever you like. Just come on down. We'll all be there. Plenty of space. Plenty of space. That's it. Um, come watch Brendan and I uh, with the whippersnippers just uh, going crazy, <laughs> <laughs> cutting down those weeds. Uh, on Sunday, so Sunday right after the 19th, and there's a couple of events. So um, if you didn't get down to the farm on Saturday, but you did still want to get down, uh, there's another event happening at Downs Community Farm from, again, from 10 to 1. This is an event run by the Mornington Peninsula Permaculture Network, um, of which I'm also a part. And I'll be giving a tour of the site and discussing, I guess, all the aspects of running a volunteer project of this size. Um, you know, the successes, the, well, the history, the successes, the challenges, of course, and the future. Um, so you can register that. Register for that um, through the Facebook event that we have up on the group on uh, online, Friends of the Mornington Peninsula Permaculture Network. Mm-hmm. Um, just add yourself to that group and um, we'll get you in there. And uh, there's another thing on yeah. Chelsea he- in Chelsea Heights. Chelsea Heights. So on Sunday, um, there is an open gate at Chelsea Heights Community Centre from 10.30 until 1. Mm. Um, I believe that is a register or, or register some interest in there, but open to the public to have a look around. Um, there is also an open day at the Rosebud Community Centre on Sunday. Um, so that's down further down along the bay and mm. down in Rosebud. Um, and in that general area as well, taking it back a day, so going back to Saturday, um, Heronswood is doing a kids' gardening workshop. Um, so that's on Saturday morning. So there is loads around Bayside, Carum, the peninsula, uh, if you're into gardening. Amazing, amazing. This is the month for it. Mm. Um, it's happening next week, next episode. Next show. So um, we'll talk a bit about food forests. Mm. So this is... Uh, yeah, we'll keep discussing, or at least from my perspective, having a permaculture perspective on some of the topics that we talk about. And you can't talk about permaculture without talking a bit about food forests. So we'll, we'll, this isn't going to be a section that I necessarily just put forward. That We'll both talk about it, but um, a bit about what they are, how do you start one, is it worth it, all that sort of information. Uh, we'll talk a bit about summer garden care. Very important. I promise you I won't talk about irrigation. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll just refer people back to this episode. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, we'll do a spotlight on food vines. So we're not talking necessarily vining fruit like uh, tomatoes. We're talking the other things you think of when you think of fruit vine or food vines. So grapes, passion fruit, kiwi, and for those beer drinkers – for Friday Night Frothies, if you're listening, we'll talk about hops mm. as well, which is a really fun vine that you can grow. And uh, we'll probably chuck a few more in there as well yep. as we think of them. Sounds yeah. good. That's it. So as always, thank you. Thanks as always for everybody listening and participating. Um, thanks for sending in messages. Uh, we wish you a great fortnight ahead. And thank you as always. We hope we've inspired you to get your hands dirty, to try out some new stuff in the garden. We'll see you next episode. And this has been Brendan. And Henry. On another episode of The Gardening Show, signing off. See you later.